From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Religion for Life, religionforlife.com. I'm John Shuck. Religion for Life explores the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My guest today is Michael G. Long. He's an associate professor of religious studies and peace and conflict studies at Elizabethtown College, and he's the author or editor of several books on civil rights, religion and politics, and peacemaking in mid-century America. And he turns his attention in his latest book to Mr. Rogers. His book is called Peaceful Neighbor, Discovering the Countercultural Mr. Rogers. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Welcome, Michael, to Religion for Life. Hey, John, it's great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. It's good to be in your neighborhood. <laughs> yes. Well, welcome to the neighborhood. Uh, tell me about uh, this book. H- how did you get started uh, to write this book about Fred Rogers? Well, I'm involved in peace and conflict studies. That's partly what I teach here at Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania. And like many people, I've watched viral videos of Mr. Rogers during times of violence. And when I looked at those clips, I thought to myself, uh, there must be a vision of peace there that he's drawing from. And so, I, indeed, uh, that's what I discovered when I went to the Fred Rogers Archives in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, at St. Vincent College. And I began to dig around. I looked at his sermons. I looked at his letters. I looked at his uh, papers, essays, books, you name it, and his programs, of course. And I came away uh, realizing that Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, uh, was a Christian pacifist. And so I tried to piece together that uh, vision of peace in which I was really interested. Well, uh, how, how many episodes of Mr. Rogers did you end up watching? Well, I watched uh, maybe too many. <laughs> <laughs> I watched a lot, uh, certainly in excess of 100. And uh, there's a gem in every one of them, I will mm. say this. And for me, it was really comforting to sit down and uh, watch him share his vision of peace. Well, you never watched him as a child, and I didn't either. I only watched him later as a cynical, you know, teenager or adult. Um, And uh, so tell us for a little bit, kind of for those who might have forgotten the show, how how does the show work? Well, you're right. I didn't grow up watching Mr. Rogers. I grew up uh, watching Sesame Street when I was young. I was a Sesame Street kid. Uh, and that irritated my brother because Dark Shadows was on at the same time. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but Sesame Street trumped Dark Shadows in my house. But Sesame Street was a lot different from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Sesame Street focused on educational development, uh, the numbers and the alphabet. And Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood really focused on feelings and emotional and affective development. And so his program was devoted primarily to the expression of feelings and encouraging children Uh, not only to express their feelings out loud, but also to be okay with those feelings deep inside. So his program really was uh, focused on helping us grow emotionally and psychologically. Now, at the end of your introduction, you describe Mr. Rogers as a, quote, fierce peacemaker. And, And I never would have thought to use the adjective fierce to describe Mr. Rogers. So when did you start thinking of Mr. Rogers as as a fierce peacemaker? Uh, the folk singer Pete Seeger described Mr. Rogers as namby-pamby. And when Mr. Mm. Rogers was uh, characterized in public, it was usually as somebody who was wimpy. Uh, 
And Fred Rogers was very aware of this. In fact, he told uh, Johnny Carson at one point that while he appreciated the humor as much as anybody, he was concerned that these caricatures of him made him appear just wimpy. And he wanted people to take his work seriously. And so that's what I try to do in the book, John. I try to take his work seriously. And when we take his work seriously and we place it in context, we see that this man was fierce in the way that he shared his vision in a society uh, that was poised to kill. It takes ferocity to do that. And I think that Fred Rogers had incredible courage in, uh, in order to share his vision of peace during the Vietnam War, the Persian Gulf War, and so forth and so on. I describe him as a fierce peacemaker exactly because of that. He was relentless in sharing his vision of peace, and he didn't let anybody stand in the way of his doing that. uh, You'd say that uh, actually, as we look back on him, we've domesticated him, taken him out of his historical context. And of course, your work is putting him back in his historical context. So for example, when he's talking about, you know, um, uh, working with uh, the poor people and the poor people were, are working or, or he's dealing with uh, peace efforts, uh, he's opposing some of President Nixon's uh, a policy and rhetoric. Well, if you could go back just a little bit, John, in 1968, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood uh, goes national. And in the very first week it goes national, uh, Mr. Fred Rogers decided that he would broadcast programs in which the episodes presented the uh, belief that war, quote, war isn't nice. You don't understand that. We can't understand that belief unless we place that in historical context. And what's going on in 1968 is the Vietnam War. It's the height of the Vietnam War. And so Fred Rogers is using his children's program to share his belief that the Vietnam War isn't nice, uh, that it's not good, that he's opposed to it. That's pretty remarkable in 1968. He does the same thing throughout his life. You're right. During uh, the Nixon years, he continues to do the same thing. Uh, on the issue of food in particular, which you raised, uh, Nixon had this sense that the poor didn't have a good work ethic. And uh, later, Ronald Reagan had a sense that there really wasn't hunger in the United States. And Fred Rogers takes on both of those points and develops episodes in response to them, in which he shows us that uh, not all pe- poor people are lazy, that many are hardworking and simply can't pay their bills. And during the Reagan administration, he develops episodes in which he calls for us to recognize that hunger really is rampant across the United States, and there's a desperate and urgent need to address it. So Rogers, really interesting to me, is constantly responding to uh, the politics of his day. We usually don't think of him as a political person. When we decontextualize him, uh, we take him out of the political sphere, but we can't understand his television program unless we put it in its political context. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Michael G. Long. He is the author of Peaceful Neighbor, Discovering the Countercultural Mr. Rogers. Well, at the time of these broadcasts, did the public or parents or government leaders perhaps see Mr. Rogers as subtly undermining, say, the war effort or, or some of the rhetoric that's coming out of the, the leadership? Well, the Fred Rogers archives includes uh, letters of people who descended from his program, people who were upset uh, with his program at particular points. And sometimes you do find a reader or two writing in uh, stating that Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, shouldn't be uh, taking on politics, that he shouldn't be sharing a pacifist view, uh, that he should 
remain focused on children and children's issues alone. Uh, but Rogers had this deep sense that the big issues, the big social issues like war, like hunger, uh, like feminism, deeply affected the lives of children. And so he felt obligated to do what he could do. So in spite of the criticism that he received, and indeed he did, uh, he continued on the path on many of these issues, not all of them, but many of them. And he talked about uh, the Gulf War, as you mentioned, uh, or, or at least his program implied that uh, the Gulf War was child abuse. Yeah, uh, Fred Rogers had this sense, too, that when we rip parents from their children, it's child abuse. Mm -hmm. And so he clearly denounced the government for taking away parent soldiers from their children. In fact, Senator John Heinz at one point uh, introduces a bill that's designed to exempt from combat one parent of military couples or single parents who are their children's sole provider. And Rogers supported that bill, and he wrote a letter to uh, Senator Heinz indicating as much. And Rogers wrote something like, we mustn't perpetuate abuse from one generation to the next, and separation from a young child's security, their loved ones, is a gross form of abuse. So he had this real firm sense that taking parent soldiers from their children is a gross form of abuse. And so he ended up uh, calling Congress and those who supported uh, such behavior uh, abusers. You know, I remember watching uh, my son watch Mr. Rogers uh, during the first Gulf War, uh, and he really liked Mr. Rogers, and I, I really didn't, hadn't paid attention for him, but I kind of focused on this. I was in seminary then, and I remember uh, public service announcements that he offered about concern for children and not exposing children to too much uh, television coverage. And I guess I never really thought it was anti-war. It seemed to be how to care for children amidst it. So his opposition seemed somewhat subtle, under the radar, uh, understated. Would you say that? Or yes, those PSAs in particular are, are very subtle. And so while the children are learning on television, uh, on programs and news, that it seems okay for s certain people to go to war and to use guns to kill one another, uh, they're not learning that message from Fred Rogers. Indeed, during those PSAs, he's saying that if you don't want to play with guns, it's certainly okay. It's also okay to be afraid. And so what he's doing, very subtly, you're right, John, is creating an alternative policy that is a, a, a place, almost an oasis of peace and justice for children to exist in, uh, not only as children, but as adults as they grow older. That's, uh, that's an alternative to a society that's poised to kill, that they, that they learn from their government is okay for it to, for it to exist. But yeah, you're right, he's subtle in many times. In fact, uh, Betty Aberlin, who played Lady Aberlin on the program, often wanted Fred Rogers to come out more directly and more publicly against war than he did uh, in her mind. Uh, Betty Aberlin was a marcher. Uh, she marched against the Persian Gulf War, for example, and Fred Rogers wasn't that type of personality. He was somebody who was content to uh, share his anti-war beliefs in the quiet of a studio in the front of a camera. He wasn't somebody who would grab a, a picket sign and, and, and march in the streets in front of the White House uh, yelling things. He had a very, what should I say, a Zen Buddhist approach uh, to peace. And as you write, he, uh, you write, I'm quoting you, he was one of the most radical pacifists in contemporary history. So, this, so even though he didn't march, he definitely uh, was, was a prophet, as you put it, for peace. I think he was. I think he was so radical in part because he was relentless in sharing his anti-war beliefs. 
Uh, some people seem to be pacifists in one war and then quickly forget their pacifism when another war emerges. But Fred Rogers was pacifist uh, throughout his adult life, and he shares that, and he's relentless in sharing that as well. It's also radical in the sense that in its roots, it's deeply Christian, uh, and those Christian values of nonviolence and peace and justice stand sharply opposed, radically opposed to a society that says it's okay for some of us to go out and kill. So on those uh, on those points, I think that Fred Rogers was very radical. Yes. And, and you just mentioned the, the Christian view. I was going to get to that next. He was a, a Presbyterian minister, and he was pacifist because of his, uh, of his theological views. Could you describe uh, his theology uh, for sure. us? Sure. Uh, Rogers was an ordained Presbyterian minister, ordained in 1963, and the Church was smart enough to allow him to be ordained to, uh, to minister to children through the media. And so Rogers took his uh, ministry very seriously. And in his mind, the ministry was based in the life of Jesus. And for Rogers, Jesus was the Prince of Peace, the peacemaker, the one who came to share uh, peace and, non and nonviolence, uh, not only with his people, but the world as well. And so when Rogers reads, Blessed are the peacemakers, and turn the other cheek, and love your enemies, he takes those verses, he takes those words very, very seriously, very literally. And so he feels called by Jesus in his own ministry, in Roger's own ministry, to be the peacemaker that he believed Jesus called us to be. And so for Rogers, to be a Christian is to be somebody who is a pacifist, uh, to be nonviolent, even in the face of um, horrible injustice. Rogers just felt as if uh, those who follow Jesus have, have a deep obligation to be peacemakers, and that means nonviolence for Rogers. Uh, more generally, I think his theology tended to be progressive. Uh, for example, in 1983, he arranges for Lady Aberlin on the program to sing a song called Creation, and in that song, uh, Lady Aberlin refers to God as she. Now, that was Rogers writing that uh, lyric in, in 1983. He was progressive on other issues mm. as well. He believed that uh, God had a vis big vision of peace, just as Rogers did, and that God called for us to exercise racial justice, uh, justice in, for women, uh, the elimination of poverty, and so forth, and, and, and on all of these social issues on which Rogers was progressive. Uh, he, gra he grounded those issues in his uh, progressive spirituality. And, of course, he did uh, deal with issues of race and uh, integration. Uh, Officer Clements, uh, part of that. And, and, and you talk about the, that the, the waiting pool and, and the image of, 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 the, uh, of the Officer Clemens and uh, Mr. Rogers waiting together. Right. You know, Fred Rogers was deeply committed to racial diversity. And to understand this, uh, we also have to place this in context, too. So... Not long after the inner city riots erupted following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968, Rogers decides that he's going to introduce the character of a black police officer, keeping everybody safe mm. in the neighborhood. And that black police officer is played by Francois Clemens, and, and Clemens debuts as Officer Clemens on August 1st, 1968, not long after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., and Rogers here, I believe, is responding to all these images 
that are flooding the television of African Americans who are setting uh, the streets on fire and who are looting uh, stores and businesses, homes. And Rogers is uh, showing that nah, that doesn't tell the whole story about African Americans. And look, here we have Officer Clements. It's pretty. Ra it's very radical in 1968. Rogers also uses a waiting pole, you're right, John, uh, to demonstrate his vision of integration. And at one point, Rogers sits down, and he has his feet his, uh, feet in a waiting pole, and he sees Officer Clemens walk by, and he, he invites Officer Clemens to sit down and to soak his feet in the waiting pole. It's a very moving image. It's an image of four feet, uh, one very white and pasty, and that's Fred uh -huh. Rogers, and the other... The other is darker, and those are, uh, those are Francois Clemens. And it's a vision of integration. It really is. And Francois Clemens believed as much at the time. And uh, Rogers clearly was uh, sticking out his position with Martin Luther King Jr. and his vision of racial integration at this point. You know, uh, Rogers clearly was not a fan of separatism, racial separatism on any level. And as black power is... Uh, is um, Rising in popularity at this point, uh, Rogers sticks his claim with the old guard of the civil rights movement, and that's the folks like Martin Luther King Jr., Roy Wilkins of the NAACP, and so forth, who still are very firm uh, integrationists. Now, King, at this point, uh, has already been murdered, but, but Rogers is very clear in uh, siding with Dr. King at this point. You know, in addition to his theological views um, on on pacifism and integration and all are equal. He also had a, a real sense of depth psychology, too, and how to, uh, how to try to transform anger and, and, and how to teach that uh, to children. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. Rogers always told children that it was okay to be angry. This lesson stems from something that he himself suffered when he was a little child. When he was a little kid, he's he usually got a ride back and forth to school from an African-American uh, person who lived with the Rogers family and who acted as a chauffeur. The Rogers were very wealthy. They were concerned about Fred's uh, well-being, and you know they had this fear that he might be kidnapped, like the Lindbergh baby, and so they mm -hmm. had somebody drive Fred back and forth to school. But at one point, he has to walk back from school. And at this point, some kids chase him, and they yell uh, some horrible things to him. They yell things like, Hey, Fat Freddy, and believe it or not, Rogers at this point was, as he put it, overweight and shy. So they yell, hey, Fat Freddy, we're going to get you, and Rogers is scared to death. And he starts running like crazy. And he goes into a, a neighbor's house, and he finds refuge there uh, from a neighbor. And he gets upset at this point because some of the adults tell him that they shouldn't, that he shouldn't worry about what those kids said about him. And Rogers later said, as he reflected on this incident, you know, I was angry. I resented them for not being able to see who I was in my essence. And that is somebody loving and some, somebody who's capable of loving and, and who's also lovable. So Rogers spent the rest of his life, I think, helping children not get in, stuck in similar circumstances. He wanted them to feel that it was okay to, for them to feel angry, to feel resentment. But he, at the same time, John, he really wanted us to understand that it's never okay for us to be angry in a way that hurts ourselves or others. And so he always combined those two lessons. It's okay to be angry. It's just okay not to hurt ourselves. But it's not okay to hurt ourselves 
or to hurt others as well. Now, so what do you do with those angry feelings? Well, Rogers was a trained, somebody who was trained in Freudian therapy and, and also the uh, therapy of Jung and others. And Rogers really latched on to uh, sublimation and channeling. And so he called for all of us to channel our anger, our feelings of anger into uh, things that are constructive and, and, and upbuilding, like the arts uh, and uh, building things and, and anything else uh, that would be constructive. Or, and music and the arts especially. Rogers loved music and the arts especially. But he also talked about sports and how we can channel our anger there as well. But yeah, he was really into channeling. In fact, I think the Mr. Rogers, I think Mr. Rogers Neighborhood is a program that is all about channeling. I mean, you can't understand that program unless you understand those psychological theories of sublimation and channeling. Uh, my guest is Michael Long. He's the author of Peaceful Neighbor, Discovering the Countercultural Mr. Rogers. Uh, at my current church, Actually, we've had protesters, street preachers, yelling pretty vile things at us, including parents and children as parishioners are entering the church. They're upset about our liberal theology and our advocacy for inclusion for LGBT people. And this last episode happened just this last weekend as I was reading your book, and I asked my Facebook readers, well, what would Mr. Rogers do? And, and I'm, of course, uh, thinking of the children. And, and in your reading of Mr. Rogers, what principles and practices uh, might we learn from him in terms of caring for children in the midst of loud and vulgar bullies? Well, I think that he would want us to encourage them to believe that we can keep them safe and that we will keep them safe uh, from bullies, that they can always turn to us. Uh, he would also want them to understand that no matter what those bullies say, the essence of who we are, no matter what they say, is one of being loved and one who's able to love at the same time. Let me go back and talk a little bit about the LGBT issues and Fred Rogers, if mm -hmm. I may, John. Yeah. Is that okay? Sure, please. Okay, so Fred Rogers belonged to an LGBT-friendly church in downtown Pittsburgh. Yeah, it was Sixth, uh, sixth Presbyterian, I think it was. Sixth Presbyterian mm -hmm. Church, yes. And he supported the LGBT-friendly ministries that were there, according to the minister who was there at the time, that Fred was there as well. Uh, Fred also told the minister that his support would have to remain quiet, uh, for the sake of the program. Uh, so Fred Rogers, while he supported these LGBT-friendly uh, ministries and attended an LGBT-friendly church, uh, wasn't always that way in his life. In, in the late 1960s, Francois Clements, who was openly gay, had attended a, or had gone, visited a uh, gay bar in downtown Pittsburgh, and Fred got a wind of this, and he called Francois into his office. Francois Clements played Officer Clements, and he told Francois that if he came out of the closet, uh, he would have to, he, Rogers, would have to uh, remove him from the program. And this just devastated Francois, mm. who was very upset. And Francois remembers or recalls that Fred also talked about the possibility of getting married, and that's the way that some gay people dealt with their sexuality. They got married to a woman and, and channeled their gay sexuality and the arts and, uh, and other constructive ways. And so Francois left that office, uh, determined to get married to a woman, and he did for a year. And predictably, uh, that marriage failed, and he took that to Fred as well. And eventually, they worked through the issue, and he, Francois, believes that Fred came to support him in his gay sexuality, that he supported uh, Francois's gay friends as well. Uh, but Francois clearly felt rejected early on. There's no doubt about that. Francois also believes that 
Uh, Fred was not open to the idea of having a gay character on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. That was something that Francois suggested. Uh, and even more interesting to me is that Francois uh, recalls that his sense that Fred did not want Francois to wear an earring indicating his gay sexuality on the program. It was okay for heterosexuals to wear wedding rings, but it would not be okay for Francois to wear to wear a, an earring indicating his gay sexuality. Uh, so it seems as if there are some uh, back and forth issues that Fred himself was struggling with in terms of uh, LGBT issues and gay sexuality. Uh, it was a complicated history that uh, that Fred had, but uh, by the end of his life, he certainly has gay friends. He's hired gay, openly gay people to be on the program, and he's part of an LGBT-friendly church, too. So he ended up, uh, so you can't ultimately call him a, a saint or put him on a divine pedestal on every issue, <laughs> but, uh, he's, but he certainly grew along the way, too, didn't he? Yes, indeed. In fact, you know, what's interesting to me about this is that Fred was always saying, and Mr. Rogers was also always saying, I like you just the way you are. Mm. And Francois Clemens, at some point in his life, at some points in his life, really didn't have that sense from Fred Rogers, uh, that he liked Francois just as he was. Uh, but at the same time, this is really what I want to emphasize. Fred also said, Fred Rogers also said, that I like you just the way you are. Now let's grow together. So don't forget that second part. Hmm. Rogers had a clear sense that though he liked us just the way we are, or at least said as much, he also had this sense that we need to grow together, that I need to grow, that you need to grow, that he needed to grow, that certainly the children on his program needed to grow as well. In fact, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood is all about growing us in our compassion and uh, our love for one another and for ourselves. So, yeah, you know, growth is a key issue in Rogers' life and in the life of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. We just have about time for about one more question, but I want to talk about uh, the effects of what he did. His program was on for over 30 years. Uh, is there any kind of evidence that uh, the children that he taught throughout these years um, took those values as adults? Well, I can tell you that I've had a good number of people come up to me and tell me about their lives uh, when they were children and not feeling accepted by others people who felt marginalized for a wide variety of issues, John, uh, mm -hmm. people who felt alienated, uh, people who didn't feel accepted. And these, and they were children at the time, people, children who felt pushed to the corner, uh, pushed aside, shoved aside, uh, shoved into the background. And these people, when they became adults, uh, told me that nobody was more important in their life as a child than Mr. Rogers. And he was so important to them because he told them, I like you just the way you are. You don't have to change for me to like you. And so that sense of acceptance, that sense of belonging, uh, that sense of being trusted uh, is something that affected them dearly and gave them the courage uh, to go on day by day and grow into adults with some sense of confidence and with some sense of courage that who they were was good enough. Peaceful Neighbor, Discovering the Countercultural Mr. Rogers. That's the book by Michael Long. Mike has been my guest here on Religion for Life. Thank you for this. Thank you for introducing us again uh, to Mr. Rogers and, and for being with me today. John, absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's been great talking with you. 
You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Shuck. For more information about this program and for links to podcasts, go to religionforlife.com. That's religionforlife.com. Religion for Life is free to radio stations. And thanks to KZUM, Lincoln, Nebraska, WEHC, Emory, Virginia, and WETS in Johnson City, Tennessee for carrying Religion for Life. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, download episodes on iTunes. Religion for Life is produced by KBOO Portland. Be welcome.